I like technology. I like technology for kind of all of the important reasons. We all like it, you know, GPS. We can find our way and get somewhere. When my children travel, they can text me, and I, and I know they've arrived safely. But I like technology because I can obtain readily stupid and insignificant information. For instance, yes, last night, <laughs> uh, as some of you do too, at the end of a, of a long day, Jane and I will retire to the bedroom and we'll flip on the TV just to see if anything's on. So we flip on the TV last night and there's a movie, and I know this has happened to you. There's an actress in the movie, I recognize, and she's not, you know, a headline actress. I'm like, where have I seen that person before? You've experienced this, yes? Okay, now I'm older, so I experience this a lot more than you do. The other day I discovered I had put the butter away in the cereal cabinet. Every once in a while I'll go and I'll move the laundry from the washer to the dryer, come back an hour later and discover while I moved the laundry from the washer to the dryer, I did not turn the dryer on. This, this is my life right now. But anyway, so what did I do? IMDB, big fan. Look up the actress. Yes, now my mind is relieved. I have found some insignificant information. Now, to prepare you all for what I'm about to teach, it occurred to me I wanted to find something on, on trust. And I remember a movie, sort of, where a lead male actor is extending a hand to the female lead actor and, and says something like, do you trust me? Right? Now, 20 years ago, I would have been completely lost, but not today. We Google that, right? I get the answer. There's several movies where this occurs. One of them is the movie Aladdin, the animated Disney movie, right? Which I haven't watched since my sons were very young, but that wasn't the one I was looking for. And apparently in the movie Titanic, did some of you have that one in mind? Do you, Leonardo, right? Do you trust me? That's not the one I was after either. The one I was after, though, was National Treasure. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Ben Gates, the descendant of a family of treasure hunters, is searching for the world's greatest treasure ever. And he meets up with, of course, the female lead, Dr. Abigail Chase, who is the, uh, works at the National Archives. And, of course, you know the plot, right? He's going to steal the Declaration of Independence. So the relationship starts off as one of no trust whatsoever, but of great suspicion. But as the movie goes on, right, this is movies, this is how they work, they build trust, they build a relationship, and near the end of the movie, she is dangling from, you know, a falling structure, and he's got her hand, and he looks in her eyes and says, do you trust me? And she says, yes. And then he releases her hand, because she falls on a, on a platform that, that, that catches her. She doesn't plunge to her death, if you know the movie at all, right? <laughs> but the point is... Over the course of the movie, there was trust built. And I suppose if I asked each of you, you know, what kind of person you are, do you readily trust people or are you readily suspicious of people? I'm someone who has always readily trusted people, maybe to the point of being a little bit gullible at times. But I think our experiences in life, too, help kind of shape who we trust and why we trust them and what we trust them with, right? Right? So today's question has to do with trust, it has to do with faith. Today's question is this, I think it's a pretty important question, is God faithful? Can we trust Him? We're going to look at Romans 9, first five verses. Would you please stand, page 945 in the Bibles that are around the room. Romans 9, the first five verses. 
Paul says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, your, your word is uh, just so awesome. The truths it contains, um, the direction it gives our lives, the understanding we can gain of who you are and what your plan is for us, Father. We ask this morning uh, that, that, that that plan be crystal clear, uh, that our hearts are spoken to, uh, that our lives are transformed, uh, and that you are honored in all that we do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. This is a really interesting uh, section of Scripture we're starting with here. Chapters 9 to 11, as you you read the the scholars, there's there's a variety of interpretations of this. Uh, One is that it is kind of a complete digression. It's it's parenthetical that chapters 1 through 8, you have this great theological presentation of the gospel. Chapters 12 through 15, you have the application of the gospel. And 9 to 11 was just kind of stuck in there. There's another group of scholars, a complete opposite end of the scale, that this is the heart of Romans, and that one through eight is merely an introduction, and the end is merely a conclusion. Most scholars fall in the middle, that this is a core part of what Paul is teaching, an integral part of what he's developing and has developed in the first eight chapters. And although it, it, does, it is kind of a unique, separate part of the book, it's very important. Okay? But we can't help but notice that as we're, as we're reading from chapter 8 to chapter 9, that there's kind of an abrupt change of tone. I mean, the last three verses of chapter 8 is kind of a crescendo of confidence in our salvation in God, right? Paul writes, no, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heart, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then chapter 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What the heck? Or in the language of your people, what up? (laughs) Did did I do that wrong? Is that right? Was that where I should have? Was that? Okay. You shouldn't let old people do this nor height, nor death, nor anything else to great sorrow and unceasing anguish, certainly there's a change of mood here. While the theology continues, there's something going on, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And as we look at this, we're going to start from back to front. We're going to first look at who is the subject of this paragraph that Paul is so emotional about. We're going to take a good look at who they are and what their significance is. Then we're going to look at the reason for his anguish and for his sorrow, And we're going to explore a little bit why he seems so compelled to have to defend himself. I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth in what he's about to say. And all of this will lead us to this important question. Is God faithful? 
So let's start with who he's talking about. And this is very clear at the beginning of verse 4. The subject of this paragraph, he says, pointedly, they are Israelites. That's what this paragraph is about. Now, who, who are the Israelites? Well, we're going to go back all the way to the beginning. We're going to go all the way back to before creation. From time immortal, when God, before he created a single atom in the universe, had a plan. And when I talk to my skeptical friends about this kind of thing, I, I frequently get this response. When they ask me a question about, you know, the Trinity or some theological question about which I have a fair degree of uncertainty, they go, see, that's, that's why I can't embrace Christianity. If I don't understand it, I can't embrace it. And I say to them, we're talking about a being, a God of the universe, who created all that is. Do you really expect that you're going to understand him? That usually stops him for a moment. But... So God, before time, had this plan. Before he created a single atom in the universe, before he created Adam and Eve, before he created anything, he had this plan. And then he created. And then he created his special creation, mankind. And then in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, he gave Adam and Eve a choice to obey or to rebel. And they rebelled. And you know what? When they rebelled, he was not at all surprised. He knew it was coming. There's another thing I don't understand, how that all fits into everything, right? But even as they were rebelling, at the moment he was announcing judgment on their rebellion, he hinted already at the ultimate plan the ultimate end of how this would go. He said to the, to the servant, I will, whoops, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the plan would be manifested in the offspring of the woman. But there's more. Because God's plan takes place within the historical framework of mankind. To execute his plan, God would create and choose for himself a people. And the father of that people would be the man named Abraham. And in chapter 12 of Genesis, the plan begins to unfold. The details begin to come clear. He says to Adam, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then we see how God begins to unfold this promise, to unfold this plan. Because Abraham and Sarah have a son in their old age, Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older, but Jacob, through some shenanigans and deception with the help of mom, obtains, some would say steals, Esau's birthright, right? Then, after a night of wrestling with God, that must have been an interesting experience, God gives Jacob a new name, and his new name is Israel, and now Jacob, now Israel, will have 12 sons by two wives and the maidservants of his two wives, including Rachel's two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, who he favors most because they're the sons of his beloved wife. Each of these sons will become fathers of great tribes. And through the descendants of one of these tribes, the tribe of Judah, God would bring forth the Messiah. 
But there is more to these people, Israel, than descendants and ancestors. And that's what Paul is telling us in this passage. From the time of Abraham's calling until the time of the Messiah, these people, the chosen nation, received the special favor of God. Israel was the recipient of privilege and benefit, and most importantly, promise. And Paul describes that here, beginning in verse 4. He says this, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. To them, to Israel, belongs the adoption. Israel is not just a people. They are God's adopted son. When Moses is about to go before Pharaoh, God says to him, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. Later, the prophet Hosea, in reflecting on this event, says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. In all of this, foreshadows our adoption through our deliverer, Jesus Christ. And we saw this in chapter 8 when Paul writes, we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So Israel is adopted. And to Israel also belongs the glory. To Israel and only Israel, the very manifestation of God's visible glory the Shekinah, as seen in the cloud that led them through the desert and as, and as seen in the tabernacle and the temple in the Holy of Holies, only to Israel was the recipient of God's personal presence available. To them belonged the covenants. God is a God of covenants. He cov- the covenants are the means by which he makes relationships with people. And it is with Israel specifically no other people that God historically made those covenants. We saw it with Abraham a moment ago, that God would give him land, make him a great nation, and bless him and bless all of us through him. And then he extended that through covenants with Moses and David. And in each case, God creates relationship with Israel and promises with Israel. And in each case, that covenant points ahead to a Messiah. Then Paul goes on, to Israel, to them belong the giving of the law. It is to Israel that God, after delivering them from slavery, described how these chosen people were to live. He spoke in his voice and wrote with his very finger, revealing his will for his chosen people. It is to Israel and them alone that the worship belongs. God is holy. We are not. God cannot abide with sin. But to Israel, God provided a means by which people could approach the holy living God. To Israel, they gave a system of preparation and purification that allowed the priests on behalf of the people to go into God's presence. To Israel belongs the promises. We could not list 
the number of promises God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. He promised them the Messiah, as we saw first intimated in Genesis 3.15, that the Messiah would be fulfilled in the tribe of Judah, that the Messiah would not see corruption and would be raised again from the dead. And then the many promises of Isaiah 9, which we reflect on every December, a child would be born, a son would be given, the government would be upon his shoulders He will be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, a prince of peace. If it wasn't so hot, I would feel like I should wear a red sweater when I read those words, right? Verse 5, Paul ties this all together. Who is this Israel? They are the people of the patriarchs, the great ancestors through whom God created a people for himself. They are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who is this Israel? They are the race from which Christ himself would be born. Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. But there's more than that. It's more than just a promise to a woman that her descendant would save his people. It's more than just a nation of human beings descended from Abraham. To Paul... They are more than just a hypothetical people. They are his people. He is one of them. He says, my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. You know, I think Paul is not only one of the most fascinating people in the Bible, but just one of the most fascinating people in history. And we have to kind of piece his life together. We get most of his biography from the book of Acts, at least most of his post-conversion life and, and what he did. We get a little bit, you know, he was the, I guess, the, the coat check guy at Stephen Stoning. But other than that, it's all about after the conversion, right? And if we want to get more of the backstory, we really have to go to some of his epistles where he explains his life beforehand, especially in Galatians and Philippians. And in Philippians, he says this of himself, circumcised on the eighth day, according to the covenant of Abraham, of the people of Israel, but not only that, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. There is no one more Jewish than Paul, he is saying. And as to the law, a Pharisee. In another incident in Acts, Paul has gone back to Jerusalem, and this is after his third missionary journey, and he's gotten a reputation, not a very good one among his Jewish brethren, who are not accepting the Messiah, because he is preaching something that is not their traditional law. And he goes to the temple with a number of friends, and he's going to do a purification ceremony, kind of in part to relay the message to those Jews in Jerusalem who are hostile to him that, hey, 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 I'm still one of you. But the Jews, seeing him do this, recognize who he is, and accuse him of bringing Gentiles into the temple, and they start beating him. And a Roman tribune comes upon this scene, and they must have had a weird system of law, because if I came upon 10 or 15 people beating up somebody, I would think you arrest the 10 or 15 people. Well, they arrest Paul. I don't know. Roman law is kind of weird that way, I guess. But in trying to make an explanation for who he is, he says this, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So what do we have so far? We have a chosen people of God, 
specially elect, special to the God of the universe. We have a member of that people, and what is he saying? Something's wrong. He's anguished. He's sorrowful. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to flesh. There is something terribly amiss. Paul is horribly distressed about something related to his brothers, great sorrow and unceasing anguish. The extent of his distress is such that, gasp, he could wish that he himself were accursed and cut off from Christ. That's, that's pretty extreme. Of course, Paul knows, because we just read it at the end of chapter 8, that that exchange is not practically possible. He just expressed how we are eternally secure once we are in Christ, yes? About what related to his kinsmen, the first century Jewish people, is Paul experiencing great sorrow and unceasing anguish? What is going on that Paul uses such strong-legged language and imagery? Now, there's no concise statement in this paragraph that tells us, but the content of verse 3 and the rest of the content of chapters 9 to 11 make it clear. Here's his distress. Large numbers of God's chosen people, Israel, are not accepting that Jesus is the long-awaited Christ. In fact, he says it more clearly in chapter 10, verse 1. He says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. The nation of Israel, these first century Jews, God's chosen people, are by and large rejecting the very Messiah that their ancestors longed to see. Isn't that curious? Then, backing up, moving backwards, Paul makes an impassioned defense of his sincerity about his anguish and his sorrow. As he is expressing this, and describing his anguish, he feels compelled to defend himself. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. First, he's claiming in the positive, I'm speaking the truth. And then he's claiming in the negative, I'm not lying. Something he does elsewhere, but almost exclusively when he's addressing opponents' attacks. He wraps all of this around his position in the Lord and drives home the point by appealing not only to his own conscience, but knowing that his own conscience is fallible like our own, he brings in the witness of the Holy Spirit. I am telling the truth. Paul's sorrow and anguish is understandable. His people are not accepting the Messiah. But why the emphatic defense? Well, there's, there's a couple of reasons that could be at play here. First of all, as we have seen, this is kind of late in his, in his missionary journeys. He's been around Europe a couple of times. His reputation is well known. Those Jews who do not accept the Messiah are very offended by what he is teaching. And some have believed, but some have, uh, have not. In fact, his, his pattern is, is, is pretty clear. I'm going to read a little bit from Acts 17 to give you the feel of what, what Paul has gone through. And I didn't put it on the screen because it's lengthy, but just listen to this narrative. Now then they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonic. Okay. They came to Thessalonica, that one I can pronounce, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer 
and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers from the city before the authority, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money little bribery going on. As security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away. Paul has been kicked out of every decent synagogue in southern Europe and southwestern Asia. He has offended them. So it may be that this defense is, really, really, I am sorrowful for my brothers. Another theory is that he's going to introduce something that's kind of theological weighty, and he just wants to make sure everybody's with him. But the probably the reason is this. There are questions that are hanging, and I'm sure he has encountered them, because by the time he writes Romans, this is not his first rodeo. He's been on three missionary journeys. He's been doing this over and over and over again. He has received every question that can be asked. And he knows this is an important one. The Jews are the chosen people of God. Their scriptures describe the Messiah. They prophesy about his coming. Paul's sorrow is because these people of God are rejecting the Messiah. How could, think about it, the privileged people of God have failed to recognize the Messiah? How can we reconcile Looking back from the 21st century, the unresponsiveness of the Jews with God's covenant and promises. Is it true that the promises in the Old Testament have not come to fruition for Israel? And if they have not, how can one be sure that the great promises made to the church will be fulfilled? Paul has just said, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But God chose Israel. God covenanted with Israel, yet Paul laments the state of his fellow Jews. The question is, is God faithful? Paul's going to spend the rest of chapters 9, 10, and 11 fleshing out the specifics of Israel. And Chris and Jesse and others will explain it all to us. But let me give you the short answer to the question, is God faithful? Do you have your pens ready? Yes. Yes, he is. How can I say that? Let's look at 2 Corinthians. This is a letter Paul wrote about a year before he wrote to the Romans. And in the first chapter, Paul is first of all explaining to the Corinthians why he had not come back to see them. He had indicated that he would, and then God had another plan for him. So the Corinthians were a little upset that he didn't keep their invitation. And in this explanation of why he did not come when he thought he would and that it was God's will that he didn't. He says this, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, 
Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All of the promises of God point to one thing, Jesus the Christ. Every promise made to the nation of Israel is fulfilled in him. Is God faithful? Yes. And his faithfulness is fully expressed in the finished work of Christ on the the cross. The Old Testament directly points forward through promises of salvation and promises concerning God's commitment to his people. Some of the promises are very specific. The Messiah would be of the line of David. The Messiah would be born in uh, Bethlehem. Some of the promises are more general. God promises to his people that he would be their God that he would be with them, that he would protect them, that he would care for them, that he would discipline them, that he would supply their needs and have personal relationship with them. But ultimately, all of those commitments find their fruition in the final salvation that God works out in Christ. The numerous promises of God given through the mouths of prophets, different times, different places, they all converge like lines going to a single point. The Son of God whom Paul and his companions now proclaim is the answer. It is as if God is saying, Jesus Christ, my Son, is my yes to every promise I ever made. He fulfills everything I have ever said. Since Christ is the fulfillment to all of God's numerous promises, it follows that the Old Testament, where all of these promises are made, really only makes sense when we read it with Christ in mind. Christ is the end to which the Old Testament is pointed, the goal toward which it moves. To read the Old Testament without reference to Christ is like reading a mystery novel with the final chapters torn out. Another one of my favorite movies is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. You like that? Not if you like that. I love that movie because it's about transformation, right? It reminds me of, of, of me, of what the Holy Spirit uh, has done. And if you've seen that movie, or if you've not seen that movie, I'll tell you enough of the plot right now. He is a, uh, works for Time Magazine, and Time Magazine's about to have its last printed issue. They're going to go online, right? The technology thing we spoke of earlier. And he was sent by their ace photographer a negative, which is to be the photograph on the final issue, and he can't find it. But... The photographer gave him some clues. And the female character in a scene in this movie says to him, I took a class on writing mystery novels, and you always write the end first. And that way, when you put the clues early on, they all make sense. And that's what God has done. Now, he wrote the clues first in the Old Testament. But we have the advantage of being after Christ. And he has given us the end of the story. And when we read anything in the Old Testament... We have to view it through that lens of Christ because Christ is the answer to all of those promises. All the clues are scattered throughout the story, but without the finale, no one could be sure of the explanation of the mystery or the identity of of the one in whom all of the story is about. The gospel of the Son of God is the final chapter of God's story, which explains all, and without which what precedes it remains a puzzle. God is faithful, and his faithfulness was fulfilled in Jesus. We're going to get more about the details of the status and role of Israel in the coming weeks, but 
Already in Romans, Paul has laid a foundation for who Israel really is. And he did it in chapter 2, and he wrote this. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. We who are followers of Christ are the spiritual Israel, God's chosen people. And every attribute that Paul described in verse 4 now applies to us. He described the Israelites as adopted. Paul just told told us in chapter 8, we are the adopted sons and daughters. In uh, Israel was where God's glory manifested himself. Paul has just told us that we are going to be glorified with him in the end. He described the nation of Israel as the people of the covenant and Christ on the night night when he was betrayed, before he fulfilled the promises, said, this cup of my blood is the new covenant. They were the people of the law, but Jeremiah spoke of a time when the law would be written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and we live that now. When it comes to worship, we no longer have to go through priests and purification ceremonies. Jesus said to the woman at the well, the hour is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him, and we are those people. And finally, the people of the promise. God has fulfilled every promise made in Christ. The night before his death, Jesus instituted a ceremony, deeply symbolic of what was about to occur. Jesus was about to fulfill every promise God had made. And each week, we believers join in renewing that ceremony by taking the symbols of Christ's body and blood. We welcome all believers in the room to join us. There are going to be stations in the back and the front. Uh, We offer both wine and juice as your conscience leads you. The wine is in a a cup marked with twine. Uh, You can follow the diagram, or I just suggest follow the person next to you. It's usually easier. If you're not a believer, we ask that you would take this time to reflect on the teaching. Maybe this is the day that you accept the finished work of Christ. Maybe this is the day you become a spiritual member of the nation of Israel. The pastors will be in the back to pray with you and answer your questions. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, we're so thankful for your word and that it shows us that you are a God who is faithful, that you are a God that makes promises and fulfills promises, that you are a God that can be trusted with everything that you have said and everything that you have done. Father, we thank you that you have revealed those promises to us in your word, that you have fulfilled those promises, and that you continue to walk with us day by day, uh, dwelling within us by your spirit, Father. Uh, We just thank you for all that you've done in the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. Um, And we just give you all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.